call saying. You may be seated. I don't know why giving somebody a high five means you can sit down. So, um, Job chapter 8, beginning with verse 9. The Bible said, For we are but of yesterday, for we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days upon the earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? Can the rush grow up without the mire? Can the rush grow up without the mire? Can the flag grow without water? Skipping down to verse 19, the Bible said, Behold, this is the joy of of his way, and out of the earth shall others grow. This is the joy of his way. I want to speak to you for a little while this morning, just simply the joy of his way. Everybody say thank God for his word. Now God bless you, you may be seated. Thank the Lord. The words of our text here this morning are of a man by the name of Bildad the Shuhite. That's a very bizarre sounding name. He's Bildad and he's from a place named Shuhite. Somebody said one time he was the shortest man that ever lived. He was Shuhite. He was, Bildad the Shuhite was one of the ill-fated comforters, if you will, of Job. And uh, I'm going to assume this morning and take for granted that all of you are familiar with the story of Job. Bildad was one of his comforters. And those of you that have strong Bible knowledge will remember that Job and his three comforters actually lived around the time of Adam, very early on in the scripture, all the way up towards the very beginning. And as a result of he and the other two's verbal discourse with Job, he would be a big reason, Bildad would be a big reason along with the other two, that the phrase has been coined, Job's comforters. And I'm going to again assume that all of you have heard that phrase. But he and two other of Job's friends decided that Job's dilemma was self-inflicted and their advice was almost as discouraging as the circumstance that Job was in. In other words, their comforting didn't do a whole lot of comforting. And although many things that Job's friends shared and scriptural record are not doctrinally pure, the words recorded here are literal poetic pearls of divine wisdom delivered from a very sloppy bowl of twisted theology. It is in these few words that we can find a true picture of man's existence and the nature of God's will 
for the church. You see on the screen today, and I asked Casey to make this graphic for this sermon. Of course, it has the title, but I'm not trying to depict here today on the screen about still, peaceful waters. What I'm trying to show you on the screen is all of that greenery that's standing up real tall and uh, grows in the water's edge and can literally grow out into up to about eight or nine feet of water. It's called rush. Some of you may have heard it called bulrush. Um, bulrush or rush, I'm going to use the word rush, is a weed. Uh, looks kind of similar to iris, if some of you know what iris is. Looks a little similar to that. It can grow up to seven or eight feet tall, and it is banned from the state of Washington. Uh, they do not allow rush to grow in the state of Washington because it is so aggressive. It grows and populates itself at an incredible and a very alarming rate. And uh, uh, because of that, the state of Washington, they've had their feel of it, and they don't want no more. It's kind of like the kudzu that grows across the state of Mississippi and Alabama and what have you. So when the writer said that the rush cannot grow without the mire, the writer is saying, Bill Dad is saying, and I'm going to ask all the walkers to come back in. When you come back in, find a seat and try to stay there for the rest of the service. The Walker family. <clears throat> a lot of distraction going on here today. And even if you're from Walker, <clears throat> go ahead and find a seat. <clears throat> it's something in the blood. <laughs> um, I guess if you're from Watson, you're just used to your dad calling you, or you calling your dad, and he just says, what, son? Uh, anyway, um, but I've got the picture on the screen to show you what rush is. And the writer said that the rush cannot grow without the mire. The rush was more commonly known as a papyrus reed. It grew up along the Nile River in Egypt and was extremely versatile in its very... There, there's a lot of many and critical purposes that it had. Rush weed, for example, were woven together and used to make clothing. The roots were dried and used for fuel in a poor man's fire, providing warmth as well as a way to cook for food. The people along the Nile River had learned how to weave sails for ships out of rush weed. And uh, it allowed for the exporting and importing of goods for commerce. Empty bellies could be filled by eating this plant. The steam was used, or the stem was used as a writing instrument while the inner pit of the reed was cut into strips and dried to make papyrus scrolls upon which history was recorded. The rush, basically a weed, was literally one of the building blocks of very early civilization. The papyrus reed or the rush was truly a necessary element in the growing of cultured society 
of that day. Civilization cannot exist without the recording of learning and attained knowledge. The Egyptians advanced in their understanding to become the greatest world power of that day because they were able to capture for future generation the laws and dreams of their fathers, and they did it with the rush or the papyrus reed. Our very Bible that some of you hold in your hand this morning is the product of papyrus reed or rush. The prophet Moses and the other prophets that followed him were moved on by the Holy Ghost with a reed in their hand writing upon a papyrus scroll using this papyrus reed or rush. Without the rush, we could not have books. We would not have books without the rush. Literally, history uh, would not have been recorded from this period of time. We would be void of the richness of our biblical heritage had it not been for the rush. Without the papyrus reed, the men of Job's day would have been illiterate savages without any uh, societal progression or educational advancement. Without the rush, there would be no civilization. Without the mire, there would be no rush. Down under the root, down under the root and the fiber of the growing green rush that lifts itself up to six to seven feet above the water's surface is murky, mushy mire. This dark black substance created where we cannot see nor perceive. The mire that produces the rush upon which civilization was built and recorded. The mire that caused all of that to happen. The mire comes from and is made by the fermenting death of once living things that have been soaked and crushed together into a rotting mass of mud and muck. Winds and seasons cause splintering branches and leaves to fall to the ground where when mixed over time, when the rain created streams and ponds, beneath the rippling waters there was something going on. Things that once lived, things that once lived had fallen and were now dead and in the process of crushing and grinding would become layers of slime. Mire is the coagulation of life that has died to give life something that has not yet lived. Mire is the coagulation of life that has died to give life to something that has not yet lived. And from the muck and mire, from the slime and goo, springs forth new life. In this case, it's the rush weed. There is no rush without the mire. Bildad asked in the presence of Job and the other two friends, can rush grow up without the mire? 
And of course, the answer is no. Listen to pastor right now. And what appears to be a very confusing and very bizarre message this morning. But every great and beautiful thing that nature has ever produced at its root is something dark, gooey, disgusting, foul, and undesired. Likewise, everybody say likewise. Likewise, every mighty, magnificent spiritual happening comes with a murky midnight death somewhere attached to it. Let me submit to grace today. Strong churches just don't happen. Mature saints don't just sprout up from the surface of a thin and flimsy spiritual existence. But there is somewhere an umbilical connection to a dying situation. Our whole redemption in Jesus is pivoted to a rugged cross with rusty nails and a gasping Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The most glorious thing in the entire world is when a person is redeemed from the shackles of sin and to the liberty of relationship with God and His kingdom. But beneath the luscious green growth of salvation is the black mire of a cross which took His life and poured out His blood. Revival does not come without a price tag attached, attached to it. Whether it is a revival in the individual or a revival in the home, or revival in the church but revival comes and beneath the surface of celebration of revival is the place of a birthing process to produce a child a woman must endure sometimes days of pain and suffering when the child is born we see the product of that travail it is easy to forget the struggle for those who have not been through it but a mother never forgets Perhaps this is part of the reason why there is such a strong bond between a mother and her children. She knows like nobody else the price that was paid to bring that child into this world. The nature of the church is not simply to live for itself, but to bring life to those who have never lived. The nature of the church is not to simply live for itself, but to bring life to those who have never lived. Yet many have not been channels through which the Spirit of God may flow. In other words, there's an element of people in the church that truly believe the church is only in existence for them, for their needs, and for their problems. We don't understand today that, yes, Jesus redeemed us by his death on the cross to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. But there's an adjunct that was added to that a few months later when he said to the disciples, Go ye 
into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We have to understand that the church does not live and exist for us, but in reality, the church lives and exists for those who have never lived, including you and I prior to our coming to Christ. Somebody shout praise the Lord. Although we have this treasure in earthen vessels, a picture is not just for gathering, but a picture is for pouring. A pitcher is not made just to house some good southern iced tea or your favorite ice-cold beverage, but it's also designed to take the content on the inside of it and pour it out to minister to the thirst of others. And thus you have the purpose of the church. We don't exist for ourselves but we must learn that part of our existence is for others. It's a wonderful thing to hold and to contain truth, but we cannot keep it to ourselves and learn to be satisfied. There must be a giving process, a dying process, if we want truth to produce life. The gospel was intended to create out of us a self-sacrificing, self-denying, self-giving church. We should not live for our own ideals, nor even breathe for our own living. The church was meant to be a part of his life. And to do that means we must also share in his death. I find it interesting that Rush is banned from the state of Washington because it produces too quick. It chokes out other vegetation. Things can't live around it. When you plant a sprig of this stuff, it goes hog wild. I've never known of a modern day era church that's been banned from its city because it's taken everything over. They own every business. They're the managers at every company. They're the employees at every company. If you want to hire somebody, you have to hire somebody out of that church. I've never heard of that happening. You know why? It's because we want the green lush that produced that, that you see on the screen. But we don't want to go through the dying process to produce it. What the state of Washington is dealing with, the rush is not the problem. The mire is the problem. It is too fertile of a ground. I'm sorry. I... Is the reason we're not multiplying at the rate we should be is it's not because we're living too much. It's because we're not dying enough. We're not producing enough muck and mire to give us that. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, he said that I may know him, talking of Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. 
We are to be, listen to pastor right now. We are to be a living, dying people crucified with Christ. You say, that's a huge oxymoron. It is, but it's biblical because Paul went on to say in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul was saying is that that I'm dead and I'm alive at the same time. And you say, how can that be? It just simply means your flesh, your desires are dead. His will, his spirit, and his desires are living in you. And when Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you may have it more abundantly, he wasn't intending on making you a party goer. He wasn't expecting you to become the life of every celebration. He wanted his will and purpose to be resurrected on the inside of his people so that they reproduce like crazy. There's a price to pay for revival. And today I'll call it underground realities. It's those things that most people never see. But it's the underground realities. They're the reason that there are roses and daylilies and Bradford pears and azaleas. My father-in-law is here this morning. And uh, there was a time when he was an amazing gardener. And he was very careful when he picked the plant and when he picked the seed, whatever it was he was growing. And uh, but also noticed that in close proximity of his garden, there was always this big, huge pile of nasty, stinking, undesirable compost. It was made up of certain kinds of food that was way past the place of spoiling man. They wouldn't even produce the green stuff anymore. Everything in it was dead, rotted. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's amazing to me that I have literally known of men, Brother Tommy, that were fishermen that would do a compost pile in their yard so they could harvest worms out of it to fish with. So even good fish bait is a byproduct of yesterday. The rotted, the no good, the discarded, the unhealthy. I find it again, one of those amazing paradoxes of Scripture. That out of the ground, the Bible said, Jesus came and was able to give life in a way that he was never able to give it before. Out of the ground comes, by and large, a huge portion of our diet. Everybody knows here today, 
Kids are taught it in school that every day you need to eat a certain quota of fruits and vegetables that is a byproduct of the ground of dirt and soil and a nasty pile of stinking rotted compost and we bite into that apple. I was talking the other day, Brother Tommy, about your daddy's peaches. I've never had a peach like that before nor since. You would take a bite of that peach and literally juice would run down your arm. You'd have to roll up your shirt, shirt sleeve to eat it. That stuff you buy, God bless Windex and Walmart, but they just can't compete. But when you take a bite of that apple that is so crispy and, and sweet, I, I find them sometimes, I, uh, the little red apples, whatever they call them, Sister Murphy will buy them sometimes, and they're so sweet you can eat them like candy. Once in a while I had some pineapple the other night that was just like eating a piece of candy. It was so sweet. And, and uh, on and on you can go. And while we relish in the sweetness and the flavor and the savoriness of it and how soothing it is to our tongue, nobody ever considers one of the staples of our diet has become the staple of fast food is a french fry and nobody ever thinks of it as a root. You don't think of a carrot as a root. I like turnip greens with a small quantity of turnips with it. But a lot of people eat the turnip. It's a root, man. There's people here today, they'll never eat stuff again. And I'll go ahead and introduce you to the idea that when you eat your chicken, don't even think about what they eat. They, they are not discriminating. Did you ever hear about the man that walked in the chicken yard and dropped his gun? He thought he found it 48 times. <laughs> you just woke somebody up, didn't you? My pastor never would eat chicken because he said simply, they're stupid. <laughs> I won't tell you about the man that walked in the cow pasture and lost his hat. We'll save that one for another day. Paul said, I'm crucified. It's not that I'm living, it's the faith of Christ in me that's making me live. It's the price that's paid in something dying in order to produce something to live. Our dying process, all the things that you've been through that's produced the muck and mire of your life, All of that was for a purpose. Not just so you could grow up into this beautiful trophy of heaven, of God's beauty and glory manifested in your life, but it's also that you may produce the same thing in someone else's life. We need to count it all joy. We need to count it all joy when the storms of life release us from the Laodicean mindset of satisfaction and deposits what's left of us 
into the rich soil of life-giving death. Y'all not hearing me today, I, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, Sister Murphy, but do you guys understand? I just want to stop and minister to some people here right now. There's people here today that you testify on occasions, and we all understand the statement that I've been to hell and back. Life has been horrible. Life has been anything but desirable. There's people here today that have been suicidal at one point in your life. There's people here today that wanted to just pack up and leave your family behind. Leave your spouse and kids. There's no doubt teenagers or people here today that was once a teenager that wanted to run away from home because life is just horrible and terrible in life. I won't use a word that's commonly used so often in our society, but, but life has its attributes sometimes. And a lot of times they're not that appealing and, and it's not that pleasant and it's certainly not that enjoyable. And people read the verse where Jesus said I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly and they're scorned by it and they're insulted by it and said if this is a life that Jesus wants me to live dear God I hope he don't give me any more of it I want to say it again because it bears repeating we need to count it all joy As the scripture says, we should count it all joy when the storms of life release us from that Laodicean, that lukewarm, that don't care and I'm not really concerned. If I make it to heaven, that's what's important. If what's important, I really don't care about anybody else. That Laodicean attitude that don't change its environment, but its environment changes it. We need to count it joy. When God brings us face to face with life-changing events not intended for our harm, but sometimes God chooses to deposit us in the rich soil of life-giving death. The budding flower is birthed. In the out of sight soil of self-sacrifice. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and... Y'all on board? It says life-giving death. Life-giving death. Unless the grain of corn... Fall into the ground and die, Jesus said. It abides alone. And I want to say to every person, every family in this church, if you're not fellowshipping on some level with another child of God and with a sinner man or woman of the world, you're a lonely person. You never reach your full place of productivity. Jesus said it, don't look at me like that, unless a grain of corn fall into the ground and die, it abides. There has to be a mingling 
with the compost. The seed must introduce itself to the mire, the muck of self-denial in order for fruit to be produced. I understand that nobody wants to die and nobody wants to be buried. But you know what motivated Jesus to do it? What did Hebrews say? He endured the shame of the cross. Why? For what? Wait. The answer to the question is joy. So he endured the shame of the cross for the joy. The answer to the question is joy. He endured the shame of the cross for the joy. Everybody say joy. Can I tell you today in the Holy Ghost? as I feel the Spirit of God beginning to descend on the service right now. The reason some of you folks are not happy is because you're not dead yet. Not naturally. Not natural death. But you just keep hanging on. You keep nurturing that little sprout of something. You've been fighting with it for 10 years, man, 15 years. You're not happy. You're never going to be happy. The Bible said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The Bible said, with joy shall you draw water out of the well of salvation. You know why you don't have that every day, day by day, get up every morning, go to bed every night, joy, that contentment, that peace, that solidarity of spirit and mind on the inside of you is because you're clinging to yourself. And Jesus is saying, if you'll let yourself go and give yourself to me and die out to yourself, I will give you joy that's unspeakable and I'll fill you with my glory. People here today that have that should be on your feet applauding, clapping, cheering, saying, preach on, pastor. It makes me wonder how much it exists in any of us. I'm preaching to you today the joy of his way. If you want it, you have to get it his way. Let me read it again. Brother Nathan, Job chapter 8, verse 19. Behold, this is the joy of his way. Unless a grain of corn fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. There's people here today, Sister Murphy and I talk about it sometimes, that are going through that process right now. And you don't understand what's happening to you. There's a man here today that's going through that process. It's been going on now for about a year. And we talk sometimes, and I'm not sure he has the total picture in his head yet. But can I very kindly and very respectfully say 
God's killing him. Because he sees beyond the death of that man. Not naturally. Not naturally. Spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. God's changing the way he thinks. The way he looks at things. What was important five years ago is not that important today. What wasn't important five years ago is important today. He's going through a dying process. In my very strong opinion, in the book that I just wrote, and one of these days my publisher's going to have these books to me. I'm being told now it'll be about four weeks, and I'm thankful to have my editor, Sister Pam. I'm so thankful to have her here today. I have some books, but I'm letting them out gently and uh, waiting for the next, next ones to be available. But I mentioned this process, not just like this, but in so many words I do. But I believe every preacher should have a dying experience. You guys have to die. If you can't, then all you'll be is a stalk of corn. And there won't be very many years of corn following you. Amen. Church people need to experience the death of yourself. The death of desires. I talk to people sometimes. I had a conversation, a long conversation with a man Friday. He sat in my car. I told Sister Murphy about it. And sobbed for over 30 minutes. He literally sobbed for over 30 minutes. And he said, I wake up every morning regretting that I'm not dead. Literally. His life has passed him by. He's almost 70 years old. He's called to ministry. And everything and anything. He's almost a modern day Joseph. And if it's bad happening somewhere, he's going to be in the middle of it. It just, it just happened. Struggles with bitterness. Brokenness. But I'm not sure he ever died either. And became what God wanted him to become. There's people here today, you've lived for God. You've had the infilling of the Holy Ghost for years, man. But you've never died. You're content to be that one single stalk of a beautiful ear of corn. And if God will preserve me like that. He did Lot's wife. He preserved Lot's wife in her state of halfway out and halfway in. And said that she would be always talked about. He said in his one of his discourses about the end time, he said, remember Lot's wife. She was preserved in a preserved as a preservative, frozen in a mindset, frozen in a mentality. I know I can't stay in Sodom, but I ain't going where God wants me to go either. Stuck. I had lunch with somebody the other day. I walked away from that lunch. Look, I'm not a superhero either. I'm not on claim to be Captain America and have everything situated. Work on it every day. 
had lunch with a minister the other day, and he's stuck. He's stuck in a mindset. He's stuck in a time warp. You say something to everybody here today, and I want you to sit up straight and listen with both ears. If you don't hear anything else to say today, I want you to hear this. People say, well, I like church the way it was in 1960 and 1970 and 1980. And you can't stay there. Do you understand that? And here's why. Because society wasn't, isn't now like it was then. And if the church stayed like it was then, you can't minister to 85% of society. Back in 1980, a homosexual wasn't a big deal. You didn't hear about it. It was a big deal. You didn't hear about it. But now it's everywhere. The church has to posture itself, man. And as much as I despise the lifestyle, we're going to love the person here at Grace. Well, back in 1980, that didn't have to be a big part of your message because it wasn't that prevalent back then. We were still recovering from the hippie movement and the yuppies and the yippies and whoever else. What if the church of... 1970, Brother Mike, had not moved forward when all of the hippie folks came in that we know of. What if that church wanted to stay in 1950 and sing Elvis Presley tunes all the time? You got to move forward. And sometimes what we want to live is the very things that God wants to die. And we water it, and we fertilize it, and we just want to keep it this way. I've got this little vice, Pastor. I've got this little secret. I've got this little problem. I've got this little theology issue. I've got this little thing. I remember what my grandmother taught me. God rest her soul, but grandmothers aren't as prevalent as they need to be sometimes. You need to understand that God has taken this church down a path of life-giving death. And there's some things dying here, man. Y'all stand with me, I'm finished. And it hurts. Sometimes there's things that you have to say goodbye to. Sometimes there's people that you have to say goodbye to. And the tears stream and the heart is broken. But sometimes you realize that it's his way. It's the joy of his way. What does the Bible say about gold? Gold has no value until it's refined. And how is it refined? It has to be put into a furnace until all the impurities are burned away. 
There's people standing in this building right now that has a mindset that's anti-gospel, that has an attitude that's anti-growth, that has an attitude of I'm very possessive and territorial. There's a mindset here today with some people in this building that says, I don't want the church to move forward. I like it like it is. I don't want to die. I don't want to give up today. And I certainly am having a hard time time saying goodbye to yesterday if you're ever going to understand the joy of his way if you want all that greenery you have to get real personal and start fellowshipping with the muck and the mire that's underneath it because that's what produces that you're not going to stand before God and convince him how your way was better you're not going to convince him of that You'll be judged by His way. I don't care how smart you are and how experienced you are. None of that holds a candle with God. As we were told this morning, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that He's the Lord. This is His way. And if you really want to live, While your heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I've been through some things. And look, we could all stand around here today and share war stories of the past. They all have their value and they're all deeply respected. But I do know how it feels to have the doctor say there's something wrong with your son and we can't find it and he's dying. I've been down that road. Thank God God intervened. I walked into a house that was that we had just built recently put out the fire was put out by firemen I could go on and on here this morning but looking back now I realize that that was God's way of creating a fertile bed of muck and mire so I can bloom so I can grow so I can be what God wants me Brother Buster prophesied that I'm just now entering my most productive years and I'll be 56 years old in a couple of months. Live my entire life just building a bed of compost. But now God's ready to start sowing seed. He's ready to start gathering the harvest out of my life. The dying process has been long and strenuous, but it's been worth the journey. Dying to give things life that's never lived. I wonder who you are today, where you are. There's people here today that's had some God-awful things happen in your life. But God's done it for a purpose. If you're ready to engage that and ready to receive that, I want to ask you to start moving towards the front of the building. Start moving towards the front of the building. If you're ready for God to start sowing seed in you, you're ready for God to start putting real life into your, into your existence. God, I'm giving myself away so you can use me. God, I'm willing to die out to me and live unto you. I'm willing to give myself to ministry. I'm willing to give myself to purpose.
I'm willing to give myself to usefulness. I'm willing, God, to give myself to a life designed by you. I'm really ready, God, to fit into your mold. I'm ready, God, for you to cut me out of your pattern. I want you, God, to make me in your image. Make me, God, in your image. I'm going to ask the pastor staff to start working and going from person to person. Let's start praying for people. There's people here today that God's called you. God's put his hand on you. God's done some amazing things in your life. And you're resistant to what he wants to do. You're resistant to where he wants to take you. You're resistant to what God wants to accomplish. But I'm going to ask you to throw up a white flag today and say, God, I surrender. God, I surrender to you. God, I surrender to you. God, I surrender to you. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, folks. Let the Spirit of the Lord talk to you right now. Let Him talk to you. Let Him talk to you. Go ahead. Let Him talk to you. working on people here today for a long time. It's been a lot of years. There's been a lot of things that's happened. But this is God's way of creating a fertile bed in your life that you may grow. That you can keep growing. That you can keep growing. That you can multiply and become what God wants you to be.